Welcome to the Halftime Scholars podcast, the podcast series that features the interesting work of independent and emerging scholars. I'm your host Serena, thanks for joining the show. There are emerging security trends and risks worldwide. The international security environment is gradually characterized by hybrid conflict strategies that fall under military, political, economic, information and cyber domains. Hybrid threats are complex, ambiguous and multidimensional in nature and have gradual impacts, making them difficult for states to effectively respond and pose a significant challenge to long-term security. On this episode we discuss why hybrid conflict constitutes an increasingly desirable strategy to achieve political goals with Bianca Tarisian, a strategic analyst with the Hague Center for Strategic Studies. Uh, Bianca, welcome to Halftime Scholars. Uh, we are honored to have you with us on the show today. Thank you so much, Siren. So what inspired you to get into this line of uh, hybrid conflict research? I think on an individual level, if you're following global affairs, there's this feeling that countries are in a state of some kind of war and countries are under attack in many ways. But at the moment, we don't really know how to conceptualize these attacks because disinformation campaigns launched by foreign countries or a cyber attack, for instance, these things don't come to mind when we think about a conflict between two states. We think about boots on the ground. We think about soldiers coming from at each other from opposite sides. So we think about conflict in very physical, kinetic terms. And the reality is that we're experiencing other types of conflict. And these types of conflict, they're less tangible. They're more complex and they're much, much more difficult to respond to as a state. So for me, hybrid conflict gave a name to this discrepancy because we aren't really in war. If you're in a Western state at the moment, you don't really feel like we're in a state of war, but it certainly doesn't feel like peace either. And so and my understanding of um, conflict was quite firmly rooted as well in these traditional means of war. So I was really curious about the field when I started at the Hague Centre for Strategic Studies. And HSS is a think tank that conducts analysis using qualitative and quantitative tools. And we have a range of public and private clients as well. So I would say a fair chunk of my work is for the Dutch Ministry of uh, Foreign Affairs and the Dutch Ministry of Defence. And these government bodies are really interested in this line of research. So I've been quite lucky there to be involved in a number of topics that dive into the hybrid domain, which I'm really interested in as a person as well. And so I think that because states are experiencing conflict in these different ways through new and unconventional means, as well as conventional means on top of that, there's a lot of demand for this type of research. So if we probably dive a little bit more deeper into this, what exactly uh, is hybrid conflict and what impact does it have on states? Uh, you mentioned that, uh, you know, if you're in the Western world, you kind of wouldn't know if you're in a state of conflict, but how do these hybrid conflicts impact our daily life? So if you can talk about some of the recent experiences. Yeah, good question. And something that scholars spend a lot of time looking into. So let's just go back to our definition. So hybrid conflict is when state or non-state actors use conventional and unconventional means to achieve political outcomes. So hybrid instruments can range from conventional military activity to interference with political processes, the use of economic coercion, 
disinformation campaigns, espionage, cyber attacks on critical state infrastructure, these sorts of things. It covers a range of different ways. It's about attacking your adversary by sort of any means possible. And the challenge in countering hyper threats is that the tactics are deployed in sort of a slow burning manner and they're executed under the threshold of armed conflict. So that makes it really difficult for states to effectively respond to. It's quite clear if a country attacks another country that, you know, you then defend the borders. It's very, it's very clear. But then if there's a cyber attack, well, do you respond with another cyber attack? How do you, yeah, how do you manage this domain and how do you respond proportionately? So take a disinformation campaign aimed at the US elections, for instance. It's really slow creeping. It's flying totally under the radar until it's too late. And then the impact is realized years and years later. And we realize, wait a second, this was disinformation. This is foreign meddling. Often a hybrid attack can go unnoticed until the seemingly isolated event as well is put into the context as part of a state's sort of broad tapestry of activities designed to undermine adversaries. So it seems small um, and constant until you look at the broader picture and you realize that it's actually quite large. Yeah, that sounds very interesting. You mentioned the uh, that obviously it shows it encompasses a wide area in our lives. And, and you mentioned also that it's not, it could sit under the armed conflict uh, at the same time as well. Uh, you also uh, referenced the uh, U.S. Uh, elections in 2016. Um, a couple of questions came to my mind. Obviously, there was a lot of conversation around that time with all these, I guess, media, uh, social media platforms being used to disseminate disinformation. What do you feel since that? It's obviously been four years, and 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 in, 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 and also an election coming up this year. Do you is there evidence to show that there is a similar level of uh, uh, creep, slow creep that you mentioned, uh, in you know, in terms of changing the conversation of or disseminating disinformation, has things changed? Has, uh, from your experience or from what you've read, the US uh, done something about it? Yeah, I think that's a really interesting question. There's not data right now to sort of reflect what's happening, you know, in 2020 compared to the 2016 elections. But I think that as a society, we are actually far more resilient. When we see things on social media and, you know, we're consuming these things, I think we're much more critical than we were four years ago. I know that I certainly am. And some people are taking that critique maybe uh, too far and not believing anything anymore. But in general, I think that people are much more critical and looking into the source of things and where things are coming from and they're commenting i know i see on twitter all the time yeah this is a bot this is a bot so i think that as a society what's really changed is we've grown a more robust societal response to disinformation campaigns so we can't always counter them but we can certainly grow more resilient as a society and that sort of education and that sort of critical thinking in media which i know that you're so interested in as well yeah, I think that that's what's really changed. You may have also noticed that uh, a few, probably a week ago in Australia, also there was, uh, you know, a, a news of a massive cyber attack from a, what they call a state-based actor. So at a state level, at a government level, obviously you mentioned at a personal level, you know, there's the uh, an increased critiquing by, you know, the audience or the person reading, say, a piece of news. In that example, 
um, that this is a bot or this is something that's misinformation. But at a state level, what sort of actions have you noticed from your taken or could be taken um, to counter these, uh, even if it's in a, at a later time? How does that work uh, in the field? Yeah, good question. I think that states are really bolstering their spending on cyber capabilities. And that goes for both defensive cyber capabilities and also offensive cyber capabilities. So they're really much more capable at countering these attacks than than we were. And especially if you look at the data from 10 years ago compared to now, there's really significant difference. And now you see military budgets as well, definitely in Australia and also in Europe. We're really trying to bolster that support. The difficulty there is, is that some cyber attacks can wreak a lot of havoc without a lot of time and money investment. They're quite cheap to, to, to do. So that's a little bit of a difficulty that some states will come against. But I think that I think overall the response has been quite good. I mean, it takes time to attribute, for example. So, you know, if, if, sort of a conflict happens in a kinetic space, you know generally who, who did it, you know. But attribution can take a really long time for a cyber attack. And part of the reason for that as well is that states are using proxy actors as well more and more. So instead of, you know, Iran, for example, just launching from their, you know, defense side a cyber attack, it's more likely that they'll use proxy groups who are loosely affiliated with Iran to to execute attacks. So that makes it also difficult to sort of trace things back as well. And they can always claim, hey, we didn't know what this group was doing. We had nothing to do with it. It makes it, it, makes it really difficult. So that seems to be, um, obviously the impact is, as you say, it could be a quick sort of hit and run kind of situation. So when actually a cyber attack happens or, you know, in your studies, we'll, we'll delve into your, your research area in terms of the context shortly, but just a, a couple of small questions on, on cyber attacks, as you mentioned, what exactly would a person, you know, what, infam- what would they lose in terms of a cyber attack? What actually happens? Yeah, so it really depends on what type of cyber attack it is. So it can be a a DNS attack, so a denial of service attack. It could be a hacking campaign. It could be ransomware. Um, It could be a whole range of things. So data could be compromised, but also systems could just be blocked and you could just be taken offline. I think that 2017 was a real wake-up call in the field of cyber as well because we had the WannaCry attacks, we had the NotPetya attacks, and we realized that actually with what happened, you know, uh, in with the NHS as well in the UK, our critical infrastructure, our hospitals, our schools, they are very vulnerable. So what's actually under attack is, you know, this hospital system and, you know, and people had all of their appointments cancelled. You couldn't book anything. They had to sort of go home, basically. The NHS was out of service. So when you think of the massive impact of a cyber attack like that, I mean, it's it's not easy to do, but it's definitely, those capabilities are definitely out there. And, and that's what's at risk. This means that civilians are really in 
the forefront of, when it comes to hybrid warfare in some ways because our critical systems and our critical infrastructure is being impeached upon. So it's not so much combatants and non-combatants, it's more society. That's uh, that's really frightening in, a, in some sense. You say, like you mentioned, the NHS being impacted, critical operations could be uh, cancelled or disrupted. So it's where at the forefront and especially being plugged into technology all the time, it can it makes us more vulnerable to these threats. Yeah, definitely. The good news is is that it as much as it these events are really impactful, it doesn't happen that much, luckily. When you think about the capabilities that are out there, it happens it doesn't happen more often than it does happen if if that makes sense. So some of these um, sort of norms that we're seeing as well emerging in cyberspace, and of course, HGSS also has a Global Commission for the Stability of Cyberspace in-house. Some of the work that they're doing around norm development is gaining a lot of traction as well. So we're seeing sort of norms slowly, slowly develop in that field, which is another really interesting thing that um, you could look into. Um, so if you move to our next segment, I guess the context of your research itself uh, in this area uh, what was the context uh, what were the sort of research questions and what methodology did you adopt or did your team adopt in in this uh, in this area so essentially what we sought to do was to understand whether hybrid conflict is more present now than it has been in the past and in what ways it's uniquely enabled by advancements in technology so we also we also look at um, different emerging technologies and how they could be really interestingly applied to the hybrid conflict domain as well. And we also want to know what that means for the future and what that means for how we should prepare and what that means for how the Ministry of Defence should grow their capabilities in certain ways. That's, that's really important. And the way in which we do that is through a mixture of uh, qualitative and quantitative research. We have a data lab at HGSS, um, and so we're able to sort of derive as much open source data as possible and sort of look at it in the overall scope of the trends in order to get a complete story. Also do a horizon scanning, which is we look at sort of hundreds and hundreds of sources from the past uh, six months before we do the study. And we just say, okay, what's new in this field? What's upcoming? What's um, unique? What don't people know yet? So that's another methodology that we use there as well. Interesting. So was the context, uh, obviously you said you, you look at uh, emerging technologies. Was the context purely in the Netherlands uh, or was it also looking at you know, in the broader European Union. So because our clients, I mean, for for this specific research project that I'm that I'm speaking about, because the client was the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, the Dutch Ministry of Foreign Affairs, I should say, and the Dutch Ministry of Defence, it's always good to tie in the Dutch context, but also in general, I think it's more about the EU context. But then at the same time, we're also really looking at a range of different adversaries as well. And we try to be really, really diverse. You can speak a lot about Russia and China, for instance, but we try and stay away from those sort of obvious players in some ways. And we try and really diversify what we're looking at as well. But yeah, in terms of the context, it's really about state versus state behavior in general. We don't look as much as non-state actors unless they're a proxy for a state in this context. Yeah, we sort of use this sort of 
horizon scan and all of these methods to sort of go through and say, okay, what what are the most important things for the EU context? What's the most important thing for you know Dutch security as well? That that's quite uh, quite a broad um, area, and it, it sounds a very rich uh, sort of experience and to be a part of. Um, you mentioned. Uh, Obviously, you all look at state versus state or a proxy for a state. From your, I guess, from your the work that you all have been doing or, and you've been involved in, in terms of uh, non-state actors, what sort of uh, secondary data or like anecdotal data is, is emerging in, in the sense that are they showing the same level of threat and capability uh, to disrupt, uh, you know, in, in some of the types of cyber attacks that you mentioned? Is that something uh, that's not really too concerning? What is your opinion and what is what is sort of evidence that anecdotally or secondary sort of research has, has emerged? Non-state actors uh, is quite interesting because in many ways hybrid conflict really suits non-state actors. They can be very, I mean, in some ways they're the birthplace in a way of, of these sorts of things because they don't have traditional means. When you think about a non-state actor, they can't, launch their army, they, they don't have the traditional means to respond. So they're more about this disruptive technology and this disruptive means of getting what you want. They, it does suit non-state actors, but I think state actors are really standing out at the moment. Yeah, anecdotally, yeah, unfortunately, my, yeah, my research is mostly on state actors, I have to say, or like, yeah, as I said, as proxies, really. So you have some interesting things developing in the field, um, especially where like, as technology gets cheaper, it's more and more likely, as technology gets cheaper, it's more and more likely that non-state actors will adopt the technology. And they're also, non-state actors can be very, very creative as well. So, for instance, ISIS was known to use what essentially is a robotic system by means of, what well, a drone, so just a drone that could fly. And I think they makeshift attached a gun to it. And that's a, that's a lethal weapon. And so I think that they're very creative in the ways in which they can, they can attack. And they're very, very versatile. And certainly there are non-state cyber actors as well who are, yeah, who can cause a lot, a lot of havoc. And are less easy in some ways to, for states to address in the sense that sometimes we can, as states, we can respond uh, diplomatically, for example, to to an attack and, you know, confront the country and call them out at the UN and these sorts of things. It's very difficult to do that for um, a non-state actor. Yeah, that's true. It's quite uh, quite interesting. And I guess the threat is, I'm not sure if it's more, but there is that threat to some level uh, in, in certain instances. So you mentioned in your, in your broader research that you were conducting for the Defence Ministry in the Netherlands, what were some of the findings that emerged and what are some of the challenges in the research uh, process itself that you faced? Well, I'll start with findings, I think. And uh, we found that hybrid threats are more present now than they were 10 years ago. So it's appearing that we're, it's appearing like we're facing conditions that are really favorable right now to the existence and continuation of hybrid conflict. First, there's availability of diverse and relatively inexpensive, easily accessible and very sophisticated tools. 
And these tools can be utilised to achieve strategic goals and it's enhancing the impact and reach of hybrid strategies. Secondly, states are also currently able to take advantage of an international order that's not yet fully equipped to respond to the challenge of hybrid conflict. So this is a notion that international law isn't quite developed enough to always respond adequately to hybrid conflict. And all of like these two things, combined with states' unprecedented aversion to engage with conventional warfare, so we don't want to we don't want to go into conventional warfare. We don't want to commit, commit troops. We don't want the budget. It's not uh, popular right now to to go to war. And there's never been more sort of deterrence basically about going into war. So all of these things combined, it means that hybrid conflict is a highly desirable strategy to achieve political goals, and it's going to remain so in the future. So we're going to see a lot of development in this field going forward. The technologies that enable actors to engage in hybrid conflict, they're only getting cheaper and they're only getting more advanced as well. So it's not that expensive to launch a cyber attack and certainly not expensive, as expensive as putting troops on the ground in a foreign country. Another finding that we had was that, that uh, the prevalence um, has interesting implications for international law, as I um, mentioned earlier. So conflict is normally governed by international law, but hybrid conflict continues to blur the lines between war and peace. And international regulatory frameworks depend on whether it's a wartime or peacetime situation. So our understandings of what actions are acceptable becomes really, really vague. And the shift from these interstate armed conflicts to hybrid conflict means that the current application of international legal rules is really out of sync right now with reality. And this disparity causes a sort of dissonance between, and it has us thinking, like, is it actually a conflict at all? But it also hinders counteraction and resolving disputes and seeking out uh, remedies as well, because states can't really, under international law, effectively respond to something that doesn't count as a conflict. And states really use these gaps as well in international law to their advantage, Um, They purposefully seek out not to cross the threshold into conflict and they want to disrupt just, just enough to not quite be considered a conflict. And it's in their best interest as well to provoke, but not to instigate a full retaliation. Some of the challenges, maybe, if I may as well, is a general lack of data in some regards. It's difficult sometimes to get data on cyber attacks, for instance. So many of them go unaccounted for. A lot of governments sometimes don't want to be public about what's happened as well because there's a little bit of a um, stigma around being vulnerable to cyber attacks as well. So sometimes we don't find out about things, and this goes for companies as well, sometimes we don't find out about cyber attacks till a lot later that then the data is released. So yes, that's that's a big challenge, I think. And also some of the responses aren't exactly clear yet either. It's not exactly how, okay, so there's this hybrid unit and what exactly, what exactly kind of missions are they doing? That's something that really interests me especially. There is also, it's difficult, of course, to know our adversaries are also very secretive about, about what they're doing. Another challenge is a little bit more conceptual, I, I suppose. It's about whether, you know, 
when you think about things like economic coercion and economic influence, so a state having economic influence and using that influence for their political gain, that's things like that really bridge the line between, okay, but maybe they're just investing because they want to invest because that's a smart economic thing to do. So it's controversial sometimes to link these things back to an overall political goal to have influence and to sort of gain power over sort of maybe a smaller state that a country is investing in. It's an interesting field, but there is a lot of grey area. It's it's very interesting because there's, I guess, there's not much definition to it. And the definition uh, of the sector is being made as we speak uh, because the technologies are changing and the uh, circumstances and the instances or the locations or types of uh, attacks are emerging and changing as well. Two questions actually sort of popped into my head when you were giving us the, those details of the findings and the challenges. The first part was around the the regulation and the legal side of things. Obviously, you know, if there is a, a traditional a war, you can or conflict, you can, you know, address it at the UN or, you know, maybe through regional partners. Is there, what is the, what is the sort of um, uh, discourse around creating, um, I guess, some sort of accountability internationally in this space? That's a good question. A lot of people um, in international law are thinking about this right now and are thinking about, I, I mean, there's also people who claim that international law definitely applies, like, verbatim basically uh, to this type of conflict so it's it's a really I wouldn't say controversial but it's it's definitely something that's being discussed and basically we're sort of in the stage where we're developing norms of what can and cannot be done so for instance in regards to cyberspace there's sort of norms around well you can't attack the critical infrastructure of a state that's that's protected. That's part of our sovereignty. And that's what's really happening with, I mean, broader in the hybrid sphere. It's We're redefining our ideas of, of sovereignty as well. So our economic sovereignty and our political sovereignty, and we want diff- like, we're seeing certain different certain things as sacred. It used to be very territorial based. And now it's very much about... Um, now it's very much about all the things that make up our society, our political processes, our economy, our society, our schools. And we're saying, okay, this stuff should be, you know, not messed with by foreign adversaries. But of course, in this globalized world, it's very, very difficult to sort of, yeah, draw, draw lines. It's, it's a complex space. And uh, in international law, there they're dealing with this as well. I think it's interesting what's happening as well with proxy actors because the regulations around proxy actors are really, really strict. Um, You basically have to prove a lot to say that a group is a proxy actor for another state. And because that link is so hard, it's really rare that proxy actors or that states are sort of held accountable for the actions of proxy actors. So that's another interesting field that I think should um, should really get a little bit more attention as well. The other question that popped into my head was, obviously the traditional definition or the definition at the moment is the state versus state actors that you all are looking at. Um, with everyone you know, being on a variety of technological platforms and sharing their data and information, uh, personal information, um, have you, what in your opinion is the 
is there any evidence of states using quote unquote hybrid conflict for for citizens itself like you know you get certain systems in the in the world that are some are open some are more closed where you know where you need control what sort of uh, data or is available in that space there's not a lot of data per se but i can tell you anecdotally that these sort of i think what you're sort of alluding to correct me if i'm wrong is sort of um all of this data that we have out as personal our personal data also our face facial recognition and all of these sort of things that used to yeah so i think that is really an enhancer it's not per se a cause or something you know on its own but it's really an enhancer because you can have it enables more precision and micro attacks as well so you can really get to specific people very very easily and it enables i mean technology is progressing so fast as well you can really get to a stage where you have a, a drone for example and it goes into maybe a city and and it has some sort of facial recognition as well and it can really seek out people and and surveil them for example so this is part of hybrid warfare definitely as well like i said it's a very broad field but the there's not really a lot yet known there's a lot of possibilities in, in terms of oh this could happen and this could happen and yes that's very very valid and we absolutely should be talking about that the state of technology right now is not necessarily at that level Yeah. This field is quite uh, fascinating to me. I've always been interested in technology and you know things that are emerging because there's no clear definition of a lot of these things and it's sort of catching up and you know doing the research to help people make decisions. So yeah, it's it's really interesting. So as a part of that, in what forums have you recently communicated the important, you know, work you're doing in terms of publications, conferences and any other methods that uh, you know you're disseminating this kind of uh, valuable research that you're doing? Yeah, unfortunately no conferences per se so far, but I have had a few uh publications earlier this year and also last year, and one was Neither War Nor Peace, and that was done as sort of um a hybrid global security pulse and a, a hybrid horizon scan as well and a, a research paper, so there's a lot of data in that one. And there was also a publication earlier this year that was also a horizon scan and we looked at basically trends and developments in hi- in hybrid conflict in 2020 and basically how it was set to shape 2020 and beyond. We wanted to look at all of these different things. And that was quite fun actually because we took a bunch of different emerging technologies and we thought really long and hard about how they could be applied to hybrid uh to hybrid conflict to enhance or maybe well yeah to enhance the the effects of hybrid conflict. I mean hybrid conflict isn't new. I should I should definitely say that. States have been engaging in hybrid conflict for a really really long time using this any any means possible to sort of execute their political aims. But technology really enhances the reach and the congruence of these strategies. You mentioned uh, that you in your you were doing um, I guess in as part of the Horizon study trying to use emerging technologies what were some of those emerging technologies that you know could be applied in what sort of context were you looking at if you don't mind sharing a little bit on on, on that publication so we looked at robotic and autonomous systems for example or unmanned systems and i think uh, we're going to talk about that 
again soon as well. We talked about 5G networks. We talked about um, Internet of Things technologies, micro precisions and targeting. So we sort of zoomed in on a lot of these different technologies and sort of said, okay, how, what effect will they have and how can they be applied? And that was a somewhat sinister but fun exercise to engage in because you can really be creative about how adversaries might use this technology in future. Uh, so I'm sure there's a lot of uh, yeah. scope to uh, uh, for state-based actors and also other organizations. Yeah, so just on that question as well, I think it's really interesting to look at how these technologies can be applied in the hybrid domain and there's this example of the Amazon ring hacks that happened last year. I don't know exactly if you if you knew about those, but so they have, um, of course, Amazon home security systems. They have them in rooms, also in, in front of doors, these sorts of things. And in December last year, multiple users of the Amazon Ring home security cameras, they reported hackers. So basically, there are people walking around their homes, a small girl as well. There's a video of it online, unfortunately. And somebody, a hacker, is is you know, yelling at her and telling her to smash things in her room. So they're directly live communicating with this girl who's very, very scared, of course. And it happened, it happened like in numerous circumstances as well in a lot of different homes. So this is like really interesting because I think this speaks in general to, you know, the internet of things and basically screens being integrated and cameras being integrated in all these different parts of our lives. I mean, we're bringing in cameras into our rooms, at our doors, these sorts of things. So these can be used for surveillance, but they can also be used for really sinister things like psychological attacks, for example. So just for some context on sort of psychological attacks as well, I mean, in 2014, it was reported that Ukrainian soldiers were receiving text messages from Russian, Russian soldiers saying, stop fighting, go home, otherwise I'll hurt your family. They were seeing all of these threatening and really like psychologically damaging text messages. And so it's interesting to apply these two concepts of, of then and now because this same psychological tactic could be used to harass and demoralize opponents, except instead of receiving something like a text message, the messages could be, be received over a loudspeaker in their own home. So the adversary could watch soldiers or soldiers' families, for example, interact with their surroundings and their family. And so there's real, yeah, there's real potential there for, for that to be, to be misused. And with all of these connected devices that are integrated really deeply into our lives, there's great vulnerability there as well. Yeah, that's um, some of those. Uh, the, some of the examples that you were citing sounded like, uh, you know, uh, potential movie scripts for like you know terrorist movies <laughs> that can be made in the future. And uh, obviously, you know, we are going through these um, COVID times. Um, there has been, I guess, a new opportunity, uh, and you know, no one thought a pandemic would hit us in 2020. Uh, what sort of uh, uh, it's been, I guess, six months in the year. What sort of evidence or uh, what sort of um, information is uh, are you guys looking at at the moment in this in this uh, circumstance? We're essentially 
I mean, as a research organization, unfortunately, not, not me personally, but as a research organization, we're looking at the security implications of COVID and how it might escalate. So there's a paper coming out pretty soon, actually, about that. It's really, really interesting. And so, yeah, and that will also integrate sort of hybrid things as well, because our societies are really impacted again. And I think that this will really, of course, raise, I mean, it already has, of course, raised tensions with China. And so it'll be really a crucial couple of years to figure out how how this pandemic has really influenced relations with China and what the ramifications of that will be. Just uh, another thought ran through my um, mind. Obviously, in, in some of the discussion we had today, you know, some of the critical elements, pretty much every aspect of our modern lives, like you said, the schools, the you know the the defense or the healthcare etc these are all essential it, it's something in in, in other language other kind of um, terms would be like you know having food security and economic security and uh, your water security etc uh, obviously if they're susceptible and if they have been under let's say uh, a hybrid attack uh, attack or gone through hybrid conflict but the repercussions or what can be done is is probably only defense, uh, but all, because sometimes that state actor or actors that are engaging in that cyber attack or that kind of uh, hybrid conflict with your state, uh, you kind of still need them, you know, for for business and for you know like for trade ties and international uh, security maybe. So there's a lot of uh, how does that all tie in? You know, obviously, the geopolitical nature of the connectedness. Someone comes and you know comes into your backyard and does something, and then still you kind of you can't take any sort of action in that space. Yeah, this is interesting, but also not new. I mean, I think in particular you're talking about you know the Australian context here with China, and I mean this has always been an issue because of course ideologically we're very tied to the US, to the UK, to this sort of western ideology but then economically we're really heavily tied to china and those things have always been at a conflict and scholars in australia have been going on for decades actually about how this will come to a head and how at one point we have to sort of yeah take a stand or to um sort out this this tension i would say so it's not new. Um, and I mean, China has been doing things for the past couple of years. It has intensified, I think, in the past five years. And the South China Sea disputes, for example, and all of the things going on there. I mean, it's nothing new that we haven't liked what China's doing. I think it's really coming to a head now and I'm watching it very closely. It's not precisely my area of expertise, so I won't pretend to know too much about it. But yeah. Yeah, it's quite um, quite enlightening. Obviously, there's this big tension, and you can't what what course of action to take depends on uh, you know your values and um, and how you sort of react as well. So it's it's going to be a very interesting um, few years coming up after, especially after uh, you know, the, the pandemic that we're going through as well. So obviously, you you are involved in a variety of uh, uh, very interesting. Um, research areas what 
What do you do in your spare time outside the world of research? Outside of all of this research, I'm I've recently actually during the lockdown, I think we all have a lockdown skill that we have developed. I started painting a little bit. I wouldn't say it's like it's very abstract. I will say that. It's a acrylic pouring where you sort of like pour the paint around. I'm really enjoying it actually. And other than that, I mean, I love to travel and I'm very very lucky because I live in Europe and I mean at the moment it's a little bit different but previously I have been able to travel a lot around Europe. I mean, Europeans, I really feel like they take their own backyard for granted. They're sort of, you know, traveling either really locally or they're traveling quite far away and a lot of them have been to Australia for instance, but they haven't for example been to the Balkans and a lot of other amazing beautiful places in Europe. So I've been really lucky in that regard. I really love to travel. And yeah, I also do some uh improv theater as well. I'm looking forward to that starting back when when it can. Yeah. That's yeah. awesome. So you always uh, you you yes and on stage. I yes and absolutely. Yeah. No, it's fun. I've been uh involved in dancing and acting for for a really big portion of my life. And now that I've gone down a more academic route and sort of enjoy really still taking up that part of myself that's a, that's a bit more creative yeah that's awesome it sounds uh, quite diverse quite rich uh, and quite uh, i'm sure to certain audiences uh, you know when you get on stage very entertaining as well so uh, <laughs> my final question uh, bianca for today's episode is which uh, direction do you feel that your work is heading in the, in the coming years Well, I think that we've had like 7 years or so of shockwaves in the hybrid domain. And so I think that as a field it's really developing towards looking at the future of warfare and how states can sort of position themselves. And I think that for me personally within this field, I mean, the interesting thing about hybrid conflict and maybe a silver lining in a world that looks increasingly precarious right now um is that hybrid conflicts they really make us realize what's important to our societies and what we value and what is sacred so when disinformation campaigns as i said attack democratic processes and voting processes we see that this is actually really important to us it's somewhat sacred and it's part and parcel with our sovereignty so when hospitals or government businesses agencies when they're subjected to cyber attacks we realize that a state's territory isn't actually defined by its physical borders that there's a whole assortment of things that need protecting and so really i'd be interested in looking at how new norms are emerging in society around these topics and how also our behaviors are changing amid these threats i think that a lot of people feel right now that the world is a bit chaotic and yet we're not really in a war right now so is this a constant state of conflict can we get out of this conflict will there be a state of peace what does peace look like that would be my interest going forward yeah that sounds um, very interesting and very rewarding i'm sure your search for peace will will take shape very soon i'd like to thank you very much for joining us on this episode of half time scholars i wish you all the very best and we I uh, hope to have you very soon for part 2 of our interesting uh, series that we're uh, working with you on. Yes, exactly. I'm looking forward to it too and thank you so much. It was an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Thanks. Mm-hmm. 
That's all for this episode of Halftime Scholars. If you like us, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts and join us for the next episode. Um...